Hey again, this is Brian Winchell, and welcome to book two out of four of my reading of my 2015 novel, The Teacher and the Tree Man. This will be the only intro before the reading for the book two episodes, so I want to first read the blurb for book two, and then do a bit of housekeeping before we start. Here's the blurb. Paul Lucas wants to celebrate his victory in the battle to save both the forest behind his house and his friend, the tree man, who lives there. But the tree man is not happy with Lucas. After all, the teacher betrayed their trust, but seems oblivious to this. Meanwhile, the forest has not been saved, yet. The decision on its future has only been delayed by Lucas's actions, and it's going to take Lucas becoming more honest with himself and with his friends and family for them to have even a chance in this battle. He's also going to have to learn to control his temper when he sees how the media reports his story and when he deals with how his co-workers and his wife relate to him. Sometimes it's all too much. For Lucas and the tree man to prevail, they're both going to have to ask themselves some difficult questions. What exactly are they trying to achieve? Why is Lucas battling to save the forest? Is it an altruistic effort to save the forest and the tree man? Or is it more about his need to be at the center of the story? Or both? For the tree man, he must continue digging into his past to discover where he came from. The only question is, will he have enough time to complete that task? Now, the housekeeping. As with book one, each episode will be four chapters long, so there will be five episodes for book two. Now, I know I dropped the ball on putting the whole novel out in 2020, but I promise that all five episodes of book two will be released in the next several days, and then I'm going to keep on going and get books three and four out before the spring, okay? After this episode, I'll put the following pitch with information about how you can support me at the end of each episode. Fair enough? Okay, after this brief pitch, enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening to my reading of my 2015 novel, The Teacher and the Tree Man. If you want to support my work, there are several ways you can do it. 1. Share this podcast. 2. Buy the book. The links are in the show notes. 3. Connect with me on social media via the links in the show notes. Or 4. Read my blog and share what you read. Again, the links are in the show notes. And that's it for now. Thanks again, everybody, for your time. Book 2, Chapter 1. Just the facts, please. Are you sitting down, Joe? You really need to sit down for this one if you're not already. Okay, okay, I'm seated, Joe Edwards said through the phone line to his young reporter, Mike Wilson. God, I don't even know how to say this without sounding crazy. Just give me the facts, Mike, Joe Edwards said, trying to sound as patient as was possible on a Tuesday evening in a loud newsroom with first deadline fast approaching. Well, therein lies the problem, Wilson said. The facts are real murky here. Can you squeeze 12 inches out of it? Edwards said, thinking about how little room he had to play with, considering all the ads. Nothing out of the ordinary. And, in 20 years on the news desk, he'd become all too good at not letting the lack of space get to him. Nothing a shot or two of whiskey couldn't handle. 12 inches? Yeah, easy. More, Wilson said. This could be big, I... We've got room for 12 inches, Edward said. Yeah, okay, Wilson replied. See, the thing is, this is really outlandish stuff. 
but I'm just not sure who to believe. Slow down a sec, Edward said. Now, real quick, sum it up. Okay, apparently the two lawyers and the land use commissioner went out to the forested part of the proposed outlet mall with some local dude and his wife, and the dude, and this is where it gets murky, brought them to see some sort of a, um, man's head stuck in the side of a tree. A murder? Edward said, loud enough that several typing reporters and editors stopped their work and looked up at him. No, no, a man's head stuck in the side of a tree. Wait a minute, Edward said, getting a bit impatient. Why weren't you there? Uh, Dick Stein had me on police phones this afternoon. What happened to the intern? Had school, a test or something. Damn it, why can't they just get another one? A dime a dozen, after all, Edward said, scanning the wires on his computer screen while somehow also looking for a pen. I don't know, Wilson said. Joe, what about the man's head in the side of the tree? Doesn't that warrant some extra coverage? Hey, I like ancient Northwest Indian artifacts as much as the next guy, but I don't think it makes the story that special, Edward said, about ready to put down the phone. Uh, no, Joe, Wilson said. Maybe I wasn't clear. They said it was a man's head living in the side of a tree. Sure, Edward said. Wilson, I don't have time for bullshit. You know that. It's not a joke, sir, Wilson said. Three of the four parties say they saw it. What about the fourth? Developer's attorney, Wilson said. Nothing to worry about. What does he say he saw? Nothing but a knot in the side of a tree and this guy Lucas talking to it, Wilson said. But three of the four people did see it, and the environmentalist attorney says he saw a man's head clear as day, and it was talking to Lucas. On the record? Uh, well, uh, no, Wilson said. He didn't want to be the one to confirm it. What about the judge? Well, he won't say for sure what he saw, but he's issued a one-week stay of his decision, so you figure out whether or not he saw anything. Well, we can't assume he did, Edward said. You know what happens when we assume. Yes, I know, Wilson said. I'm not in college anymore. Right, right, Edward said. So the story then is that the decision has been delayed. We know that much for sure. Keep the thing tight. We'll stick with the 12 inches. But what about the weird angle? Wilson asked. Not verifiable, Edward said. So attribute everything. Can you fire that off to me in an hour? No response. Wilson? Yeah, I can do that. Wilson said, though his voice had lost its enthusiasm. Before Edwards could respond, he heard the phone click. Sometimes Mike Wilson really wanted to strangle Joe Edwards. Since coming to the Tacoma Post from college three years ago, Wilson had answered mainly to Edwards. Back in the 1960s, Edwards had broken into the journalism world as one of the daring reporters who traveled with the U.S. troops deep into the jungles of Southeast Asia. When he went in, Edwards always told his young reporters, he was simply an idealistic young man who thought writing and reporting could change the world. But in the jungle, the monologue went, he learned a few things. Even though you often have to pick a side to survive, one of the most important things for a young reporter to know is that no matter how much you sway to one side, you must give the appearance of objectivity. The two simplest ways to do this were to attribute controversial opinions and to stick to the facts that you could verify. After two years of spending rainy nights in muddy trenches as the sounds of gunfire and falling bombs kept sleep to a minimum, Edwards emerged fully equipped with these two hard-earned lessons, and he'd been practicing them stateside ever since. 
That was how the story finished, and when he told it, Edwards really did call it stateside. There was one skill that Edwards picked up in Nam that he never brought up in the story, drinking. While the demons weren't as dark stateside, he still fought them enough to warrant a daily dosing of alcohol. And now, more often than not, when Wilson dealt with Edwards, the portly editor was working on a buzz, usually courtesy of a two-martini lunch with one of the area's power brokers. Wilson couldn't stand how Edwards got so cozy with what Wilson considered the other side. As Wilson's favorite journalism professor used to say, don't get too comfortable with the people you're covering. Your work and sense of truth will suffer for it. Wilson figured Edwards had picked up the habit while in Nam as a matter of necessity and comfort. He could just picture a young Edwards drinking late into the night with the officers, a temporary respite from the insanity surrounding him. Still, Wilson felt this habit made Edwards afraid, afraid to ever risk offending the powerful, afraid to ever have his paper come across as biased, afraid, in Wilson's mind, to do exactly what a good journalist should do, challenge the status quo, and, barring that, at least not accept its version of events at face value. Yet, as Wilson sat down in front of his Radio Shack portable computer that he sometimes thought was so old it may have been the original portable, he knew, despite his idealistic impulses, it was not that easy. For he, too, had his reasons for staying objective and for towing the line. A wife still in nursing school, one child and another on the way, two car payments, and, just recently, a new mortgage on a small two-bedroom home in Tacoma's historic stadium district. As badly as he wanted to make this improbable discovery of an odd species his breakout story, he knew he couldn't. After all, due to the posts being too cheap and profit-driven to actually pay someone to handle the police phones, he hadn't been able to go to the forest and witness the historic event. Damn, that pissed him off. He knew he couldn't sway city editor Dick Stein, so he begged local editor Sandy Sue to let him go out to the forest because the activist's attorney, Dwayne Wilbur, had said something big was going to happen, though he didn't know what. Yet, Sue had apologized, said her hands were tied, and that Stein's decision had more power than hers, and Wilson hadn't put up a great fight, because he knew she was right, and he liked her. So instead, he had listened to an excited Wilbur spit out the events of the afternoon, and while Wilson had become thrilled at the strangeness of the story, and had thought it might even be a fun one to write for once, he had returned to reality during his conversation with Edwards. And so, as he began to type, he felt a twinge of anger and suppressed it, as he accepted the assignment. Just twelve inches. Attribute everything. Stick to the facts, Wilson thought mechanically doing his work. I didn't enter journalism for this, Wilson was telling Sandy Tsu over dinner at a local 80s retro joint known as Material World. It's just a waste of time, sometimes. I mean, there I was answering police phones for a small 8-inch blotter that... An 8-inch blotter that is one of our paper's most read features, Sue interrupted. Yes, I know, Wilson said not wanting to sound too argumentative, but still wanting to express his frustration. I know it wasn't your fault, Sandy, but just because something is read by a lot of people, that doesn't make it important. Look at all the celebrity gossip coverage, for example. Anyway, 
It's hard for me to swallow that I could have witnessed something truly incredible today, something that would have possibly given our paper some national resonance. Instead, I was putting together a blotter that basically never changes from day to day. Look, Sue said, I'm sorry about what happened. In hindsight, it's easy for me to say that Dick and I made a mistake and that you should have been out there. But before, I remember you were sort of complaining about having to go all the way to Lincolnton for what you didn't think was going to amount to much. And really, none of us could have predicted that Wilbur's big thing was going to be as outlandish as a man's head living in the side of a tree. Honestly, I still can't believe it's real. Well, I can, and I think you could too if you'd talked with those witnesses like I did, Wilson said. Neither of them sounded crazy, and the assessor has absolutely no reason to lie. Come on, Mike, you know that's not true, Sue said. What do you mean? Well, just because his job is not to take sides doesn't mean he hasn't, Sue said. I suppose, Wilson answered, but not before biting into a large, juicy hamburger that he could barely fit his mouth over. Do they really need to be so big? What? Sue said. The hamburgers, Wilson said. They are getting to the point where I almost need a fork and a knife to eat them. It's sort of disgusting. Why do you think I ordered a salad? Sue said. Touché, Wilson said. Anyway, I wonder something. I don't mean to pry, but I wonder if you sometimes get frustrated with your role at the paper. For example, for me, sometimes I think that while I'm here covering something insignificant like a so-called controversial outlet shopping mall, there are real events happening, real issues, out there. Name one, Sue said. She took a sip of her soda from her supersized straw, apparently finding it okay to have a drink that was as big as a boat, just not a burger. 9-11 and the response to it, for one, Wilson said. I mean, come on, that's an easy one. None of these issues all these people are squabbling over are going to matter if America is attacked again, or, more likely, if we overreact and set World War III into motion. What makes you think we're going to do that? Are you kidding? Wilson asked, surprised that Sue who he knew was rather liberal, would believe President Bush would keep calm. It's only been one week, and the rhetoric has already gone from total shock to a desire for revenge. Give it more time, and we'll soon be attacking some Middle Eastern country, probably Afghanistan, maybe Iraq, even if they didn't sponsor the attack. Americans are constitutionally unable to turn the other cheek, even though we all supposedly love Jesus. Sue looked shocked. You're pretty bitter about all this, aren't you? Not bitter, Wilson said. Just tired of people denying reality. What's reality? Sue asked. Reality is that we Americans love war, and any excuse we have to get into one is good enough, Wilson said. Heck, I'm still not entirely sure I believe the government's whole story about what happened last Tuesday. What's not to believe? Come on, Sandy, Wilson said. You know as well as I do that governments lie. That's journalism 101. I've got no proof, but I'm also not going to just assume that the whole story we've been told is true. After all, many powerful people within and outside of our government stand to gain from turning this event into a reason for an unending war. Yes, I suppose so, Sue said. I just have trouble believing there would be people so evil as to kill 3,000 of their fellow citizens for whatever reason. I understand, Wilson said, and I'm not saying that's necessarily what happened. 
Okay, Sue said. I'll play along. What do you think happened? I'm afraid I can't give a short answer to that question, Wilson said. Everything I think I know about the events of 9-11 came to me through the media, not my direct experience. I wasn't at any of the sites, from the Twin Towers to the Pentagon to that field in Pennsylvania. What's your point? Just that if an event is presented to me through the media, I try to be wary of it, or at least keep an open mind, because there may be more to this story than our government and media is admitting. Fair enough, Sue said, but I'm confused. Are you saying it didn't happen? Depends on what you mean by it, Wilson said, sucking on his soda as he prepared for the punchline. What I think I know is the Twin Towers came down. A hole appeared in the Pentagon, though I'm not sure how, as I still haven't seen any plane wreckage, and a plane apparently crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. I could go to all three places now and see the after-effects of these events, so I can conclude those things. Everything else, I can't be sure about. So what about the airplanes? What about them? Wilson asked. Are you saying they aren't real? I don't know, Wilson said. All I know is I saw images on TV of airplanes hitting the Twin Towers. But I've seen images of lots of things on TV. Doesn't mean they are real. What about the witnesses who were there? Witnesses? Wilson said. I don't know any of them. Any witness I am being presented with also comes to me through the media. You're pretty cynical about things, aren't you? Sue said. No, not really, Wilson said. People in my life, like you and my wife, for example, I believe in and trust. But people far away, people who come to me through the media, I'm just saying keep an open mind about them. Maybe it would be smarter to be skeptical of them. Sue was silent, so Wilson continued. I mean, it's just so strange, you know. For example, why do we spend so much of our time fighting over insignificant things like this mall? And why, if we are united, do we continue to fight about these things? Well, Sue said, we both know that this country is far from united. But that's not the issue. I think you are starting with a faulty premise. I think that local issues are what matter to people, because even though we may be hearing on the news about threats from faraway places like Afghanistan, it's the changes in our immediate environment that are most tangible. So, if they plan on putting a shopping mall in our neighborhood, that seems more important than someone playing war games and politics 10,000 miles away. Yes, that's a good point, Wilson said. I haven't thought about it that way. I guess I just want to be a part of the big picture, because I feel like if the big picture falls apart, well, all these little things won't matter. And, he added with solemnity, my work won't have mattered. That's where you're wrong, Sue said. That's what I'm trying to say. Everything you do matters. It matters to everybody you touch. And while it may not be touching the President of the United States, you just never know who it will reach. Chapter 2. Nothing But a Dreamer That evening, while Wilson and Sue were talking shop at Material World, and with Scarlet being watched by a babysitter, Terry took Lucas to Dominici's, where they celebrated over steaming plates of pasta and several glasses of wine. By the time they finished, both were reasonably drunk and garrulous. Lucas, who was drunker because Terry was driving, could feel the sparks flying back and forth between them. Terry's face shined, just as it had when they'd first met 
in a California beach bar on Grateful Dead cover band night eight years before. Lucas cherished the memory, and every time Terry's face sparkled like that, it reminded him of the original connection that had felt so strong between them. When he looked at his wife in the restaurant, he felt a tinge of regret for taking her for granted lately. You really are beautiful, he said. Rather than answer, she gave him a passionate kiss that showed him how she really felt. When they finished necking, they raced each other to their car, and Terry won on account of Lucas slipping on a dark mudslick and winding up on his behind. Both laughed deeply to the point where Lucas felt his stomach muscles complaining, but he couldn't stop, and they laughed for another couple of minutes before he realized he probably should pick himself up and get into the car before anybody from school happened to cruise by and see him acting like a drunken fool. He was trying not to laugh, and finally, while Terry was digging around her purse for her keys, he was able to contain himself because he remembered a subject he needed to talk to Terry about. What do you think is going to happen to Sylvanus now? Lucas asked, remembering that his friends in college had sometimes called him Dr. Downer for his ability to take a giddy moment and stamp it out with seriousness. Terry stopped searching for her keys and looked up at her husband. What do you think? That's just it, Lucas said. I don't know. But something, something tells me he'll be all right, but... You're not sure? Terry asked. No, Lucas said. How can I be? It may be a bit of relief to share the knowledge of the man with a few other people, but that doesn't make the situation any less strange. True, Terry said, digging for her keys again and finally finding them. She and Lucas got into the car. It still hasn't sunk in for me, she said. I haven't even really started to question it. What do you know about him, Paul? Not much, Lucas said, attempting to put the seatbelt into its latch but failing. But there is one thing. I know he badly wants to get out of that tree. Can he? Terry asked as she started the car. I don't know, Lucas said. We're trying, but I don't know if it's really working. If what's working? Here Lucas paused. This was dangerous territory. Since they'd agreed when they moved to Lincolnton to renounce drugs, how was he going to explain about the mushrooms? Well, Lucas said, smiling as he realized his plan, Larry had this crazy idea, and Sylvanus and I were desperate, so I figured, why not? We gave Sylvanus some magic mushrooms. You did what? Terry said, slamming a little harder on the brakes than she needed to. Like I said, it was Larry's idea, Lucas said, getting comfortable with the lie. He got the mushrooms and everything. I just gave him to Sylvanus. What made you think that would work? Listen, Lucas said. They may have worked. Before he took them, it had been years since he'd really felt his small human body inside the tree. But when he took them, Terry... He felt his fingers and toes moving, and he felt his whole body get cold and then hot. So he thinks he may be able to awaken his body enough with the mushrooms to break out of the tree? Exactly, Lucas said, smiling. Then he frowned. There's only one more problem. What? Again, Lucas paused. He didn't want Terry's confidence and pleasure in him to disappear. So rather than telling her the truth, that Sylvanus had asked him not to reveal him to any other humans to save the forest, Lucas simply said, He says he may not be able to eat the megadose we want to give him. Something about the nasty taste. It didn't agree with him. Paul Lucas wasn't a dreamer. 
He said he didn't remember his dreams, but he never tried. To him, the night was a time for the physical body to be restored, so that when he woke, he would be rested and enthusiastic about whatever he put his mind to. Sure, like everybody, he'd sometimes wake in the middle of the night, wondering where the strange dreams came from. Why was I just swimming nude in the South Pacific with the Russian Olympic curling team? But by morning, he would have forgotten all about it. And true, occasionally, but very rarely, he'd see something that would remind him of some nocturnal adventure from the night before. But still, these recollections were vague, and Lucas made no attempt to incorporate any of them into his daily life. If he remembered a dream, he considered it like a personal sitcom of the mind, something to amuse oneself with, but nothing more. In this way, Lucas was a creature of his culture. Sure, there were exceptions to the rule throughout American history. Folks like Harriet Tubman, who led black slaves to freedom using her Underground Railroad by way of discovering safe passages in her dreams. Or Lyndon Johnson, stating that it was a dream that gave him the wisdom and courage it took to not seek re-election in 1968. And while some were giving more credence to dreams in today's world, it was just another one of many marginalized interests for Americans to consider if they could find a spare moment. Most people said things like, it was just a dream, denying any possible message or power inherent in those dark hours, never bothering to wonder why humans are wired to dream every night. No, most Americans were too busy to pay much more than occasional attention to dreams. But after Lucas closed his eyes that night, he was going to have no choice. His dreams weren't going to leave him alone so easily. Lucas is in a forest, and the colors bleed green around the edges. Hedges block his way. He wants to go straight, but can't. The air smells like rain, and as he walks, he feels a sharp pain in his foot. A root has tripped him and sent him falling, falling, and where the hell is the ground? Down, 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 he drifts through the darkness. His only wish is that he can stop and land. His hands hit something sharp, a branch or a throne. He feels warm liquid on his hand and understands to keep his hands tucked by his side. He cries, stop, and to his surprise he does, a thud as he hits the ground. Now, towering trees surround him, and he feels closed in and wants to escape this dark, ugly place. His heart races, and through the fog at the forest's edge, he senses something something large, but he sees nothing. And then he notices the trees around him form a ring, counts them, there are twelve, and he wants to shelve the whole plan. What plan? But he can't and he won't. He has to see it through. What do you want me to do? He yells, and his voice echoes among the tall trees, and a shape flies through the air, and then, right there, ten feet up a tree in front of him, an owl lands and fixes its eyes upon him. It shakes its head side to side, side to side, saying, No, and though he wants to hide, he feels exposed as it shakes its head, No, and continues shaking until its head starts spinning, and Lucas is beginning to get dizzy, and... He woke and noticed first that his body was covered in sweat, even though it was a cool night. He squinted at the clock radio on the nightstand. It was 3.43 a.m., and Terry was sound asleep. What was that about? he thought, but even though he could see the owl shaking its head back and forth vividly in his mind, he didn't know what it meant. Just a weird nightmare, he thought, and got himself comfortable again. 
just an anxiety-induced nightmare. But as he drifted back to sleep, he could have sworn he heard a soft voice in his head saying, I don't think so, Paul. Another dream. This time he can't move, not even if he wants to. He finds himself, could it be, stuck in a tree, and he senses that he, his body, is no more. But it is more, a few hundred feet more, and he can feel every branch and needle on him, this tree, shaking with the wind. This feeling is enormous, and he knows how magnificent he is, feels it fully, all the way from the crown of the tree, way, way, way down into his roots. He can feel water carrying, life-giving nutrients through his roots, and he knows this is why he is alive. But the feeling doesn't stop there. No, he can extend himself beyond the roots, can feel the earth around him, and the other roots that give life to the other trees, his brothers that surround him, and all the plants on the forest floor, them too. He can feel his connection to them, but it doesn't stop there. A hare in the clearing below him eats at the plants, and he senses the insides of this creature, how its blood moves and how it uses these leaves it eats to defeat death and go on living. The hare hops away without a care, and he wishes to follow, still curious about this creature, but he can't. For as far as his feelings extend, and as large as he feels he is, he is too large to move, and besides, what is movement anyway? He can only sway with the wind and try to understand his predicament, and it is only then that he feels his heart beating in his ears, and the fear of the unknown overtakes him, and he loses connection with all the life around him, an island in a sea, an unfriendly sea, just a man all alone stuck inside the bark of a 200-year-old tree. Chapter 3 all he wanted was coffee and good press. Lucas woke early and felt too energized to return to the land of dreams, so he rolled quietly out of bed, careful not to disturb Terry. He knew how much she treasured her last hour's rest, and besides, he needed a bit of time alone to ponder the weird night he'd just had. Strangely, the memory of the dream hadn't faded like dreams usually do. Instead, it was so strong that it was almost as though he, a 30-year-old human being, could feel his connections to the world around him. It was as though he also had a root system that spread through the ground in a towering formation of leaves and branches above him. Fortunately, unlike in the dream, he could move. For the first time, he deeply sensed how frustrating life must be for Sylvanus, always having to observe the same perspective, never able to move. As he walked out his front door to retrieve the newspaper, he became excited as he remembered the news from the day before. How would the Post explain this one? He imagined the headline, Man's Head and Tree, Stahl's Case, and he just had to laugh. However, they reported the news. For once, it was going to be good, so he hastened his pace to reach the newspaper box. The cul-de-sac was quiet and the morning still dark, so when Lucas closed his eyes, he was able to transport himself out of the suburbs and way out into the country, far away from the fast-paced world. He enjoyed the fantasy for a minute, then returned to reality. Suddenly, he had an inspiration. What would really make this morning stellar would be an iced mocha from Peppy and Prepared, the new coffee shop in the neighborhood. Well, it was near his house, but not really. 
As the crow flies, the store was maybe 200 yards from his house. From the newspaper box, he could make out the store's inviting sign, just behind a large hedgerow that ran behind the houses on the east side of Lucas's street. However, it wasn't as easy as putting the newspaper under his arm and walking to the store. The hedge was the height of two men, and too thick in most places to walk through. What that meant was that if he wanted the mocha, he would have to get into his car, drive a half mile out of the cul-de-sac, and then double back down the highway just to get to a store he could see from his house. The inconvenience temporarily put a damper on his spirits. But he was in no mood to be foiled by bad suburban design. He would find a way through the hedge so he could leave the cul-de-sac without a car. Lucas had forgotten his excitement about the newspaper story, so he tucked the paper under his arm and, cutting between two houses, started searching the hedge for some way through. It was thick and the branches were not small enough to easily part. He walked about 20 feet when he came to a spot where it appeared that one bush stopped and another started. From a distance, the whole hedge looked connected, but up close, Lucas could see a gap just large enough for him to possibly squeeze through. Reaching into the hedge, he snapped a few small branches. A good start, he entered the hedge. Careful to avoid getting caught on the small branches, but unable to avoid all of them, he was about halfway when he started to feel stuck. Breaking the branches with a bit of fury, Lucas's progress was slow, and as he took another step, a branch that he didn't see slashed him above his eye, drawing blood. Shit, fuck, he said. Was the coffee really worth this? He was about to turn back when he decided making it through was about more than the coffee. It was about taking back some control of his environment from the lousy suburban designers who obviously didn't have the foresight to consider that some people might want to walk sometimes. So he continued, or tried to, for as he'd been debating whether to move on, several small branches had snagged his sweater and pants. He tried to move, but could feel the branches beginning to rip the fabric of his clothing. He searched in the semi-darkness for the branches and, after removing a few, attempted to break through. Still stuck. Mother crap! he yelled. Panic began to overtake him. Not caring what became of his clothing, he pushed through with all of his strength and felt the hedge release its grip, but not before tearing a few holes in his sweater and pants. At last he emerged out the other side, only a short walk to the coffee shop. When he entered the shop, the barista... A young girl with a nose ring and purple streaks in her raven black hair gave him a strange appraisal. It reminded Lucas that he'd cut himself, torn his clothes, and probably looked like a mess. He'd always used the drive through so asked the barista if they had a bathroom. Sorry, but we don't have a customer bathroom. Look, Lucas said, I just cut myself walking over here and would really like to wash up. The manager's rule is pretty firm, the barista repeated sounding bored with the conversation. Only employees. So much for people in post-9-11 America showing increased compassion for each other, Lucas thought. He was getting pissed now. Where was the humanity in this girl? But he didn't want to take it out on the robot girl, so he simply said, Sure. What happened to you anyway? she asked. Walk through that hedge across the street to get here, he said, pointing out the window. Couldn't you just drive? Well, yeah, but I was at my mailbox, which is just on the other side of the hedge, and I saw your sign and thought I'd like a coffee. Could have gone back to my place and got my car and drove over a mile to get here, but that seemed like a waste of gas and time. 
Besides, I needed the fresh air. Well, that's a nasty cut. You'd better wash it up as soon as you can, she said. Lucas almost lost it. Wasn't she the same person who just a few seconds before had denied his need to clean up, and now she was telling him he needed to clean up? Just order the coffee and get out of here, he thought. One double ice mocha with the chocolate chips in it, he said. That's three ninety-five, she said, seeming happy to be back to a normal transactional conversation. After paying, Lucas sat down on an uncomfortable wicker chair and began to read the newspaper. Where is it, he thought, scanning the front page of the post. A large two-lined headline, Miller to create Mercury Media Network in 2002, dominated the top of the page. Where is it? Don't they recognize the significance of the discovery of Sylvanus? If nothing else, he figured the discovery of Sylvanus had been a major surprise, shocking in news vernacular, so it should have merited front-page attention. After all, before yesterday, the project had seemed all but guaranteed. Lucas ruffled through the paper, scanning the headlines quickly. A1, A2, nothing. A3, A4, A5, A6, no mention. A7, A8, A9, where is it? A10, A11, did they forget it? He was getting upset when he flipped to A12 and saw it. Mall Decision Delayed by Mike Wilson, Tacoma Post Staff Writer. In a stunning development, Pierce County Land Use Assessor Joseph Weston has delayed his decision on the proposed outlet mall in a small corner of the Roosevelt Forest Preserve near Lincolnton until October 2nd, citing a last-minute endangered species issue that needs further review. Weston declined to elaborate on just what the endangered species may be, saying only that the review would begin as soon as the county could field a team of scientists. Weston added that a timetable had not been set, but that he hoped to get a team to the site as early as Friday. We're elated, simply elated, said Dwayne Wilbur, attorney for the environmentalist organizations that are opposing the planned development. Like Weston, Wilbur didn't want to comment on what the discovery was, saying, I'd rather not speak on that just yet. If it is what we think it is, though, the project is effectively dead. Gary Hartman, attorney for the developers, struck an entirely different note, however. This is just another lame attempt by the environmentalists to stall a project that the public has long been waiting for, he said. Asked if he could reveal what the mystery creature was, the attorney said, No, I can't, because there was nothing there. Nothing but one citizen with a very active imagination. That citizen is Paul Lucas, a fourth grade teacher at Rainierview Elementary School and resident of a house that sits near the proposed site. Lucas could not be reached for comment. Lucas threw the newspaper onto the table and shouted, Couldn't be reached? I was home all night. My phone is listed. It's more like we didn't attempt to reach Mr. Lucas for comment. Here's your mocha, the barista said. He got up and she handed it to him nervously. Clearly she was ready for this irate lunatic with the bleeding forehead and tattered clothes to leave her store. Lucas was all too happy to oblige, vowing never to set foot in the store again so long as they refused bleeding customers a bathroom. He hadn't even finished the article, but wasn't sure he even wanted to. What had he learned? Only that lawyers continued to be lawyers, and no one was brave enough to admit what they saw. Lucas picked the paper up from the table and headed back into the cool air. He crossed the street, which was still mostly bereft of cars. 
Just as he reached the hedge, though, he heard a car slow down behind him. He was about to turn and find out who it was, but decided he didn't care, so he headed into the hedge instead. As he wiggled his way through, he glanced back and saw that the car had disappeared. A minute later, he was back inside his warm house, cleaning up the cut above his eye. It wasn't deep, but it was a bleeder, so he put a small band-aid over it. Throughout this process, he couldn't take his mind off the story, so he decided to cook some breakfast for Terry and Scarlett, who were both getting up. But he still couldn't forget about it. He couldn't understand why Dwayne Wilbur hadn't just come right out and said what he saw. Even though Wilbur had not confirmed it for Lucas, Lucas knew the man had seen Sylvanus. He could tell from the way he'd reacted so joyously. So why didn't he say it? Was he also doubting the veracity of his senses? Lucas couldn't answer this, not without talking to the man, so he vowed to do just that as Terry came walking into the kitchen, all fresh and ready for work. Whoa, what happened to you? she asked. I had an unfortunate run-in with the neighborhood hedge, he said as he swatted the story away with his hand. Terry seemed confused by his answer. What? she asked. By the way, did you make any coffee yet? That's just it, Terry, Lucas said, pointing at his mocha on the counter. I was out getting the post when I decided to go to the coffee shop. I could see the sign from the newspaper box, so I thought I'd just walk over there. The hedge, however, had other ideas. Still, I made it. Barely. She laughed as she started to grind some coffee beans. Well, you'd better change that sweater. You look like a hobo. Anyway, what did the post say? Well, they played it pretty straight, Lucas said, flipping the pancakes expertly as he spoke. Nobody would come out and admit what they saw, so it wasn't real sensational. But I'll tell you what they did mess up. What? When they said that I couldn't be reached for comment, Lucas said. I was here all night. Um, honey, Terry interrupted. We went out last night, remember? Lucas stopped. Yes, she was right. Dominici's. How could he have forgotten that? Then he realized that maybe the reporter had tried to call, so he walked across the kitchen and looked at the answering machine. Sure enough, they had a message. He pressed play. Hi, my name's Mike Wilson. I'm a reporter with the Tacoma Post, and I'm working on a story about the proposed outlet mall in Last Rush Canyon. I just got off the phone with D. Wayne Wilbur, and would like to speak with you both, Mr. and Mrs. Lucas, as soon as possible. My deadline is in a half an hour, so call me back ASAP if you get this before, and thanks for your time. Damn, Lucas thought. I wish I could have talked to him. I'm sure I could have helped. But then he realized he could simply call Wilson today and give him the gory details. I'm going to call him, he told Terry. Do you think that's a good idea? She asked. Yeah, why not? It might help fill in the gaps in his story. Well, Terry said, what about Sylvanus? What about him? Are you sure he's all right with you telling the world about him? Lucas paused. Did she know that Sylvanus had misgivings about publicity? Or was it a lucky guess? Or perhaps women's intuition? Well, it's going to come out sooner or later, he finally said. And it may as well be me who tells the world. Chapter 4. Warnings, Fears, and Frustrations Lucas was hardly a step into the staff room when Wendy, dressed in her peach outfit again, came clicking across the linoleum, her heels were especially high that day, and grabbed his arm. We need to talk, she said. Sure, Wendy, Lucas said, continuing to walk into the room. Wendy tightened her grip on his arm, shook her head, and said in a low voice, In private. Again? he said, trying to make light of whatever outrageous situation Wendy was going to tell him about now. 
Come on, she responded, and pulled him toward the empty phone room. She let go of Lucas's arm and turned to face him, eye to eye. Paul, she began, you need to steer completely clear of Weinberg. What now? Well, as you know, his family holds a financial interest in this mall, so when he found out what you did, he was pissed. How do you know? Did you see him? No, but Patty Waller did, Wendy explained, referring to Weinberg's secretary and one of Wendy's best sources of gossip. She said he was cursing your name and pacing. Fuck, Lucas muttered. He'd seen Weinberg pacing before, and it was not a pretty sight. It usually meant one of two things. He just kicked some ass and was walking himself down, or he was about to kick some ass and was pumping himself up. This can't be good. I wonder what he's going to do to me. Hopefully nothing, Wendy said. But you'd better lay low and keep out of trouble. Wendy made it sound so simple, so much easier than it actually was. See, as Lucas went through the motions of teaching, if there was such a thing as motions when teaching nine-year-olds, there were certain things that he couldn't put out of his mind, no matter how hard he tried. For one, there was the empty desk that was usually occupied by Chris Lee. Lucas missed the kid, his deadpan humor and his way of getting so excited about learning that it excited his classmates too. Lucas told himself not to sweat it, not to be overwhelmed by righteous anger, not to let his emotions get the better of him. But it was like he'd turned on a valve, and now the valve was broken, and he couldn't turn it off. After all, he felt good now, even heroic. And to return to the Paul Lucas, who had simply stuck to his assigned role, not risking himself for anything outside his comfort zone, would be a betrayal of who he was becoming. And while he felt a certain dread, knowing that his boss was pacing and cursing his name, he also felt a surge of energy and pride. His gut told him there was no turning back now. Somehow, in spite of these thoughts, he managed to avoid running into Weinberg that whole day. After school, he was smiling about this and walking into the parking lot when he saw the Schmidt brothers. They wore serious faces, sitting on the curb with their arms on their knees, propping up their heads. Neither spoke. Then, they stood simultaneously as a shiny blue Ford Expedition pulled up and they opened its back door. Through the door, Lucas could make out Bob Schmidt, who was checking his cell phone, not saying anything to his kids. Lucas had to hold himself back from running to the car and grilling the man. Do you have any idea what you did to Chris Lee? Do you even care? Or does your religion teach you to tolerate only those who don't offend you? Is that even tolerance? Compassion? Do you? Paul, Paul, came the warm yet insistent voice of Danielson. Have you heard about the school's latest plan to raise money? Oh no, what now, Lucas thought, forgetting about the Schmitz. Soda machines brought to you by Coca-Cola, Danielson said. Nothing beats cola for a good old nutritional value. Lucas wanted to laugh at this line, but he couldn't. Instead, he clenched his fists and bit down in his lower lip. He said, Why, Sam? Well, the district got a sweetheart deal with Coke. Yeah, but what about whether this is good for the kids or not? Yeah, Lucas said. All I can say is decisions around here aren't always made with the kids' best interests in mind, right? True. Anyway, Paul, Wendy told me she talked to you about Weinberg, and I wanted to reinforce her warning. Now is a time to be extra careful. Lucas was getting tired of all the warnings, and this latest bit of caution was just one more thing to keep him feeling anxious, like he'd needed another. 
Not only was he piling anxiety-producing events up in his own life like a stack of his patented pancakes, but they were coming at him from the greater world, the world brought to him by the mass media, a world where he had strange feelings that he knew some of the characters, George W. Bush, Osama bin Laden, Tom Brokaw, even though he'd never met any of them. From this world, everyday events were inspiring fear, making the heart beat ever faster while seemingly cutting blood flow to the rational part of the brain. This was not the future Lucas had imagined back in high school when he'd lived through historic, life-affirming and hopeful changes on the world stage, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Hell, Lucas could even remember widespread talk about how the end of the Cold War meant the promises of a peace dividend as less money would be needed for the military. Flash forward to his present, and it was all too clear to Lucas that these had been overinflated promises made in the giddy moment of history, and when sobriety had settled in, the world had reverted back to its fear-inspired habits. Lucas did his best not to pay close attention to all this. He'd made that vow ever since giving up journalism. Keep your attention focused away from the mass media, and you had a better chance to find happiness. But now, as he drove home from school, he realized he was going to have to break that vow. Put simply, he just had to speak to that reporter at the Post and let him know about Sylvanus. After all, it was a hopeful story. And if it helped even one person out there to feel less dread and fear, then that would make breaking his vow worth it. This is Wilson, came a somewhat rushed, probably over-caffeinated voice over the phone. What can I do for you? Yeah, hi, my name is Paul Lucas. Mr. Lucas, Wilson shouted. Good to hear from you. I've got some questions around my desk here somewhere, if you can wait while I find them. Uh, oh yes, here they are. You ready? Uh, sure, Lucas said, somewhat excited. He'd always asked the questions. This was his first chance to answer them. Okay, okay, Wilson said and cleared his throat. First, let's get right to the heart of the matter. What did you see out there? Lucas paused. Again, this was one of those pivotal moments that greatly influenced the outcome of future events, all depending on how he answered. Should he spill the beans? Reveal only a little at a time? He still wasn't sure when he began to answer. Well, it's really one of the more amazing things I've ever encountered. It's, uh, it's a man and his head stuck in the side of a tree. Okay, I got that part, Wilson said. You do? You already know about it? Lucas asked. Then why wasn't it in your story today? Uh, because nobody would go on record admitting it, Wilson said. Dwayne Wilbur said I'd have to either get it from you or see it for myself. Do you want to go see him? Lucas asked, not remembering that Sylvanus had vowed to never come out again. Absolutely, Wilson said, and Lucas was impressed by the man's enthusiasm. He did not sound like some crusty reporter who'd become too cynical to believe the unbelievable. Well, if you want to come over to my house, I was about to go out there. Uh, sure, yeah, I can be there in uh, 40 minutes. Great, Lucas said. See you soon. It took Wilson 20 minutes longer than he'd promised Lucas. First, He'd have the difficult task of rounding up a staff photographer in the late afternoon when they were all in developing shots from the morning or still out on assignment. He did find one, a rookie Wilson had never worked with before. Second, they'd had to battle traffic in Tacoma and Lincolnton, so by the time they reached Lucas's house, Wilson was fuming. When Lucas met the frazzled, stocky, boyish man with a reddish five o'clock shadow, he could tell the reporter was going to be helped by a visit to the quiet forest. Ready? Lucas asked. 
As we're ever going to be, Luke Wilson responded, and the three set out for the trail into the canyon. Rain soggied the air, and upon entering the woods, they were greeted by a low-lying fog that cut visibility to 100 feet or so. They exhaled murky white clouds, and Lucas was glad he'd put on his rain jacket. It was cold. Yes, fall was here. They traversed the slick, wet leaves-covered trail into the quiet canyon, but the reporters seemed to be the type to talk more when separated from the noise-polluted everyday world. He'd already asked Lucas a ton of questions that seemed to spill out of him like water over Snoqualmie Falls, and now he was entering a soliloquy as they entered the deepest part of the forest. I've got to admit, the man with the small notebook and pencil in his hand said, ever since I graduated from J school I've been waiting for a story like this one. A story that defies the ordinary, consumes expectations, inspires readers to lively debate. That's what I want to write, what I've always wanted to write. You'd be surprised at how monotonous a small-time reporter's job can be. And not really, Lucas said, then quickly added. I was a reporter for a year at a newspaper in Santa Barbara, but it didn't take me long to realize the field wasn't for me. Why? asked the photographer, an athletic and tan man with a mullet. I'm still not sure, Lucas said. Politics, I think. I've generally followed my instincts, and it's worked out. When you say politics, do you mean at the newspaper? Wilson asked. Yeah, Lucas said, at the paper. Between editors, departments, writers and copy editors, advertising versus editorial, just so many forms of fickle competitiveness, and from my reading of most newspapers, no offense, Mr. Wilson, the final product wasn't worth all that trouble. I pretty much agree with you, Wilson said. He pulled the hood off his head now that they had entered the tree cover of the canyon floor to protect them from the rain. He stopped and took in a deep breath. Smells great down here. Lucas smiled. Here was a potential ally. But he reminded himself not to get too excited. After all, Wilson was low on the totem pole of the post, and a lot could stand between his enthusiasm and his final product. They were approaching the clearing, and Lucas wasn't sure how to handle it. Should he proceed solo, hoping Sylvanus would listen to him present his case for why he should talk to the press? or just be open from the get-go. Lucas chose the latter option because he didn't think he could afford to trick Sylvanus again. When they entered the grove, Wilson and the photographer instantly became silent. Wilson watched Lucas approach the tree at the top of the grove. He began to yell up at what looked like a knot. Sylvanus, I hope this isn't a bad time, Lucas said, but I've got two very nice men from the Tacoma Post who would love to chat with you. Wilson didn't see any change in the knot, and Lucas rocked back and forth on the balls of his feet, waiting. You don't have to worry, Sylvanus, Lucas said. These are good men, and they want to tell your story right. But the only way they can do that is for you to speak with them directly. Still, there was no visible change in the knot. Let me try, Wilson said, and smiled at Lucas, hoping the man wouldn't take his suggestion as condemnation of Lucas's failed attempt. He didn't. He simply said, sure, and stepped aside. Uh, Mr. Douglas, my name is Mike Wilson, the reporter began, and I think your story is very important, but we can only tell it truthfully if you are willing to talk to us. Wilson stopped, considering briefly how the photographer, who seemed like a by-the-book type, would relate this story back at the paper. But Wilson didn't care. This story was important, and Lucas didn't strike him as some crazy who would make up the whole thing just for attention. 
Why would he? It wasn't as though the man had no life. Wilson knew from the research he'd done that Lucas had recently been named Rainier View's Teacher of the Year. So because he believed in Lucas, Wilson plowed ahead, despite his doubts. Mr. Douglas, I don't know how much Mr. Lucas has told you about the fate of this forest, but I want you to consider this. What the debate boils down to is that if you prove to the world you exist, your forest and your life will be saved. But if not, there's little I or Mr. Lucas or anybody else can do to save you. Do you understand? Still. The knot was still. Wilson ran his hand through his hair, wanting to beg the man to show himself. Yet he had this strange sense that there were no words that could draw this thing out. Not now. So he simply said, I'll be back. And then the reporter turned to Lucas, who yelled at the knot, Come on, Sylvanus, wake up! Don't do this again! Wilson found this last comment a bit unsettling. Had Lucas played this trick on others? No, no, he had to believe. Why would the judge order a stay of his decision if he hadn't seen anything? No, it couldn't be. Lucas was saying, and the thing existed. Wilson believed in Lucas. He had to. At least for now.